Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. We're speaking on the Lock 22 Network, and our special guest this evening is director, producer, and actor, Tony Bill. Hi, Tony. Good evening, or afternoon, or morning, or where it is that you're listening to this. Well, as I always say, in this show, it's always Saturday night. And for me, I know the days all run together, especially over the last two years, but I always think of Saturday as being a special time. And as the listeners who listen to this podcast know, I, I kind of grew up uh, watching a TV series on NBC called Saturday Night at the Movies, which was the first primetime yeah. movie series. I'm sure you remember it, Tony. I do, I do. And you know what, Saturday night is the only night of the week that I can kind of count on knowing what night it is. And why do you think that? Well, because of our COVID, uh, you know, isolation. I, I certainly don't know my weekday. Uh, I, I've lost track for a long time now of what, what night of the week it is, what often what month it is, certainly I've, I've dismissed even trying to remember what the date is. <laughs> well, uh, go, uh, you, you've been involved in movies for, for uh, quite a while. I mean, through your acting career, your producing career and your directing career. When you go back to your childhood, were you uh, were you as enthusiastic about the movies? Did you come from a family that loved movies? You know, it's, it's very funny you mentioned my family background. Today, my, my brother died, uh, one of my brothers died a, a month or two ago, and he left his meager belongings to my other brother, who gave them to me a few days ago, and said, Tony, what do you want to do with all this stuff? And what all this stuff was, in general, were uh, photo albums that my mother kept and things that he kept. And so... Uh, I, I've, I've had a, a a vivid visual reminder of my childhood just today, going through these things just hours ago, uh, looking at these pictures of me and my brothers and mother and father and all that. And that's the long answer to your question. The big answer to your question was, no, I've had I had no interest that I can remember in movies per se except I do remember the almost cliched uh, moments of going to movies when I was a kid in the late 40s and 50s. Um, and so I have, I have vivid memories of, of the magic of movies. I have, I, I never collected or went to or read about or was interested in in the movie business or stars or the culture of movies. But I, I did go to a few movies and not many when I was a kid. Long answer, sorry. Do you do any of them uh, ring out to you? I mean, do, do, uh, are there any titles that you vividly remember? Well, when you ask me, uh, I, can, I can conjure up um, easily the, the vivid few. Uh, Bambi, big in my life. I was I, probably the first time I was moved to tears in a movie or 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 afraid of something, because there was that 
that moment where, where Bambi is going to die and things like that. Uh, I remember the day the earth stood still. I remember uh, uh, early, early films that whatever it was that I saw almost none. But what I, I was imbued with was the Saturday afternoon matinee. So when I was a kid growing up in San Diego, the Saturday afternoon matinee at the Rio Theater for 25 cents, watching Flash Gordon, uh, Hopalong Cassidy, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, the, the serial uh, world of, of that day. So you would go to the movies, you'd pay 25 cents, and you would sit in a theater and you'd hear, you would watch continuous um, soap operas, basically, of these characters. And I, I don't even know what, I don't even know what an episode was. It must have been like five minutes, 10 minutes. Uh, but you'd go to the theater, you'd sit there all afternoon, and, and there would be these uh, continual um, series of, of adventures. Flash Gordon was a big one for me, big one. That was the most important for me. Uh, and then there would be a, um, a raffle of, uh, of small colorful glasses that you, if you won it, you would get to take six home or something like that. So that was that was my that was my real and really only uh, introduction and exposure to movies until much until I was in them. Much later, yeah. You echo a lot of my own uh, experiences. I'm about ten years younger than you, but uh, the prices hadn't changed too much. By fifty fifty five, uh, they'd gone up to uh, maybe uh, thirty five cents. Uh, but uh, it's funny because people today don't realize the the breadth of uh, programming. I mean, you could spend literally the whole day in the movie theater, even just a double feature with coming attractions was four or yeah. five hours. And I, I grew up I grew up across the street from a movie theater in West LA uh, called the Stadium. It was on Pico near Robertson. It's now, it's been for 50 years a temple, uh, but I completely identify that. So you, you, um, you did, movies were not a big deal in your life. I'm not surprised because uh, I, I grew, I, I was same with me. I didn't think of anything about the business. So. You, you obviously developed an interest in acting, though, when you started to go to school. Well, yes and no. I'm not sure I could call it a serious interest in acting. What happened was I went to, uh, well, I actually, to, to, to give, give it a little foundation, I went to a high school in San Diego, a Catholic boys prep school. And the, the, um, the, 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 the um, principal of the school, albeit a priest, was a very, very worldly kind of guy who was very, very committed to and interested in the theater. And I remember uh, he, he, he gave theater a, a good rap, a good name, right? He, he didn't treat it as I would expect or think and thought my friends did, which was a kind of an effete undertaking for people that were just like, you know, beneath us. But he was a kind of a manly man, and so the, the his commitment to the theater was kind of impressive to me. At least now it is. I think it was then, and um, so there was a theater, a theater culture at this school, boys' school. But 
nevertheless, a theater culture. And I, it didn't rub off on me. It, it, didn't, uh, it didn't affect me in any way that I can remember. But when I went to college, which again was a men's college, um, Notre Dame, uh, for some reason, and I, I always attribute it to boredom at being in South Bend, Indiana in the middle of the winter. Um, <laughs> one night I went to the theater and this I do remember vividly. I went to the theater to see a play. Again, there's nothing to do in South Bend, Indiana if you're a student at Notre Dame. And um, the theater was, the, the, the play was a musical called No, No, Nanette, which is a kind of a 20s flapper musical. And I sat there and I thought to myself, man, that looks like fun. That looks like something that I, being on that stage, just like, I think that would be really kind of fun to do. So I tried out for their next play. And of course I didn't get the part. It was a serious drama uh, called Murder in the Cathedral, T.S. Eliot. And they, but they, they called me back and they said, you know what? You're an in, you're interesting, uh, you know, uh, actor or whatever. And uh, we think it would be, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you as part of our theater company. We'd love to have you join the theater and um, work backstage, get to know, get to know the, the, the ropes and the culture and so on. And to myself, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to love the, I don't want to get to know the theater. I don't want to work backstage. I don't want to be back there. I want to be up there. So I went across the street to St. Mary's College, which is a women's college, kind of a sister college, college in Notre Dame. And um, I tried out for their play and I got the part. It was Shakespeare, Love's Labor's Lost. And I got a part and I got on stage for the first time ever. And I really had a good time. I, I, you know, I, I didn't feel the thrill of you know, the applause or the thrill of all the adulation or that stuff that's supposed to be happening, but I, I, I had a good time doing it. And, and, and what guy wouldn't have a good time being you know, a, one of the few guys in the, in the theater department of a women's college. So that's how I started. And um, now if you, if you had not fallen into that world where do you think you might have landed? Very good question. Well, uh, the worst that would have happened is that I would have done what my youngest brother did and go to work with my father in the real estate business. And I don't mean real estate like, you know, like Donald Trump business. I mean, real estate salesman sitting behind a desk trying to sell people, um, in his case, restaurants and liquor stores. I, I don't, I have no idea what happened. My, my heart probably was set on becoming a naval architect that designing sailboats. Cause I grew up in San Diego as a sailor and being really, really passionate about sailing. Um, but I was not, I was not inclined to the arts except there was something that my mother planted in me that I now realize was growing then. I didn't know it at the time, but there was something happening that made me rebel against my father's kind of ordinary salesman, uh, or you know, con concept of what life on earth would be. 
And so I got to Notre Dame and I became a writer, a painter, and in this respect, a, a, a performer. And there was no turning back for me. A big disappointment to my father. Uh, he, he wrote me off. He, he, he thought I was a, a lifetime failure. <laughs> so you, 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 you really, yeah. this is, yeah. it was almost like a divorce, you know? I, the 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 uh, the words that he said to me one day echo have echoed in my ears ever since, was which was um, a, a, a I guess a common curse in his era of growing up in the depression, overalls to overalls in the third generation. Now something you've never heard and I've never heard again, but it means you grow up poor, you take care of your kids, they do well and then they fail overalls to overalls in the third generation and that's what he that's what he cursed me with or predicted for me well obviously he was very wrong um was he a world war ii vet no he was actually in the cavalry if you can believe it oh my goodness the early part of the 20th century so i don't remember when he was born but he was he was a young man in the early 20s and in his day one of the service one of the branches of the service i guess the army you could go into was the cavalry cavalry sure of course of course so there's not a long time from the, the time you graduated notre dame to the time you appear and come blow your horn can you talk a little bit about how all of a sudden tony bill the fledgling thespian suddenly winds up in a frank sinatra movie well, I, I'll make this short story even shorter because it, I don't want to get too detailed, but when I was about to graduate from college, I was in, at Notre Dame, I was a, a, an experimental student. I was, there was one of three people, three students that were selected by their teachers to become part of a, an experimental, let's call it a non-program, which is in those days, if you were in college, you were either an English major or an art major or a, you know, accounting major or whatever you were, but that was what you did. And so it was decided before I ever got to college by somebody there that what, what, would, we, what would happen if we gave a student total freedom? What, what, would, what would happen to them if we just let them decide what their courses and interests and studies would be? So I was one of those three. And when I finished, the dean of my college, who had become a good friend and an invested person, because they all wanted to know what was going to happen to us, said, what do you want to do when you get out of here? And I said, being from San Diego and being as stupid and naive as you could possibly be, I said, well, you know, you know, I'd won a big painting prize and I'd done a lot. I'd published a book of poetry. And so I said, well, I think it'd be interesting to, I, I, I think it might be interesting to make a living acting. And he took me at my word, wrote a letter to a director in Hollywood who had a tangential connection with the college, Leo McCary, who wrote back and said, Tony ever comes to town, have him look me up. So when I graduated, having nothing else to do except the one profession I had, which was sailing, which was too late in the summer to get a good job, I took him up on it and I came to LA and he sent me to an agent who sent me to a studio we brought anyway i ended up in the office of two young 
aspiring filmmakers named Bud Yorkin and Norman Lear. And they were doing their first movie. And I read for them and, and they said, well, you know, would you come back in a week and test for us? And I did a screen test, the old fashioned screen test. And I got the part. And by mm -hmm. September, now graduate, you, you graduate in June, you pack your bags and go home. It's like July probably. So by September, I was starring in a movie with Frank Sinatra. That's it. Um, I mean, were you, uh, my image of someone like yourself getting a part like that is it's kind of a, a surreal situation. Um, uh, was it like that for you? I mean, was it a little outrageous or was it just like a job? A little of both. It was like, okay, I got a job. I'm going to go to work. Good. I, that's good. Got that squared away. The other aspect of it was, wow, it's like being parachuted onto Mars. It's like, <laughs> I, I am, I am in a new world that I kind of know existed. You know, you kind of, you kind of see movie sets on movies. And so like all of a sudden I'm in a new world where people speak a different language, where they are in this case, extraordinarily polite and civilized, uh, kind of exciting, but I didn't really get excited about it because it wasn't, it wasn't the answer to my, all my dreams. I hadn't been dreaming about this all my life. So it was kind of, it was great. It was like going, visiting a foreign country where they all speak different language and they all have different <laughs> customs. You know, it's, it's interesting with movies uh, at that time, uh, Sinatra was kind of a, well, he'd always been somewhat of a legend, but by 63, he was uh, firmly planted in the firmament of stars in Hollywood. Uh, what was it like working with him? Well, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, as you say, surreal is a good word because, he, he, you know, I knew who Frank Sinatra was in a sense. I didn't appreciate who he was in any sense because I, I wasn't uh, you know, starstruck or following the, the, the fortunes of movie stars. Um, but he took me under his wing in, in a most gentlemanly and professional way and was very nice. Everybody on the movie was lovely to me, really nice, very welcoming, very, they treated me like one of them, which automatically made me feel good. Uh, and, um, I'd go to work every day and it, it, it was it was kind of a, although it wasn't a dream come true at all by the lo longest stretch of one's imagination, it was not something I ever dreamed about. It was a kind of a dream. It was a kind of a fantasy of what being in the movies might probably be like, even though, as you say, in a way, it was the waning days of the Hollywood movie system. but. Uh, I think that was wasted on me. Now, would Sinatra, I always get the impression that Sinatra was a, was a, surrounded by his entourage. And of course, the world he lived in was, a, you know, you, you talk about the Rat Pack and all of that. Were, you yeah. went to work every day. You were treated gentlemanly by the cast, by Sinatra. Did you, uh, did you also mingle with them a little bit off camera? Were you invited to somebody's home or was that not possible? It, it wasn't part of the of the culture I, I would say you know these are all these people were 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 veterans you know even Norman and Bud Norman Lear and Bud Jorgen they were they were um, 
they were schooled and, and they were experienced in television. So they were knew their way around town. Uh, Lee, Lee Cobb, I mean, what a lovely man he was. All the other people that were in the movie were entrenched in show business. And they just treated me like one of them. Just like, you know, like, I don't mean they, I don't mean they invited me to their homes as much as I mean that they, um, on on the set, uh, treated me as like a like a, a normal real human being, which I would think to them I wasn't. <laughs> uh, you came from the theater. Obviously, this is your first film uh, experience. Was there a little added pressure, or was it considering that? unlike the theater, it's all live on stage and you've got to memorize all those lines in a whole bunch. Here you are kind of in the movies where they do little bits at a time. I guess maybe it was a little easier for you or wasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, even the theater was, I mean, I, I what, you're, you're making me feel uh, very important saying I'm from the theater when I just did plays in college. <laughs> but but uh, no, it was, yeah, it was, it was certainly a lot easier than that, you, you know. When you make a movie, you know, everybody takes care of you. Everybody's nice to you. Everybody helps you along. You just have to show up and do and say your lines. And if you don't say your lines, it's okay because there's a camera and they can cut and do it. I mean, it, it's the, I, I, I'm, I'm not belittling or denigrating the great actors of film, but really you just have to show up and say the lines. And it sounds like it sounds like somebody famous once said that. Was it Spencer Tracy? You know what? He probably did. But the the one quote that I love is um, George Burns. George Burns' definition of acting is, if I remember reading it correctly, he said. He said acting. The key to acting is you have to be honest and sincere and true. And if you can fake that, you got it made. <laughs> and you, of course, got a chance to work many years later with George yeah. Burns. We'll come to that in a second. But I, I have to tell you that the, the movie that you made right after Come Blow Your Horn, I, I remember seeing it. I had just seen The Great Escape the previous summer. So I, like many people, I was a big Steve McQueen fan, and I wanted to see everything he would be in. And um, Soldier, Soldier in the Rain is one of my favorite movies. It's, it's an, a little bit of an odd duck of a movie, but I find it so en entertaining. And I know uh, your character, Private Meltzer, was right in the midst of that. Uh, how did that part come along? I don't know. I got a call to be in the movie. I, I, you know, my agent called and said they want to come interview or talk to you or whatever. And that's how it happens, you know. Um, I don't know. Um, that movie is, is so interesting. You're talking about that movie. That movie to me is a, is a, a, a conundrum. Mm -hmm. that, that movie has a passionate, intelligent following. Uh, it's, not, it's not like a cult movie. It's not like a mindless, uh, you know, teenage romance. It's not like many movies that, that, that are kind of so silly and stupid that people cling to them, right? It's, but I don't get it. I did. I don't. I, I'm so embarrassed by my own performance in it that I, that I cringe 
to watch it if I ever sat down to watch it. Um, well, for for the listeners who don't know this movie, it's uh, first of all, it's based on a William Goldman novel, which I, I was startled to find out was one of William Goldman's first projects. Uh, of course, William Goldman became the great screenwriter of so many projects, including Butch Cassidy and so many great films. And it's basically uh, what now is a little bit uh, a, a miss, a kind of a gone with the wind genre, the, the service comedy. I mean, obviously, this this is uh, this takes place at a modern U.S. Army base in 1963, and um, as I mentioned, Tony plays Jerry Meltzer, who's a a private, and his best friend is Steve McQueen, Eustace Clay, who's a, a supply sergeant, who's a kind of a conniving supply sergeant, cutting all the the deals, and his his best friend is is of course. Um, the great Jackie Gleason, Sergeant Maxwell Slaughter. Uh, what I love about this movie, and I'm sorry that it makes you cringe, Tony, is just how comfortable you feel with these characters. Um, and it's it's funny because I know Steve had done some comedies before his breakout features like The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. He had done uh, The Honeymoon Machine and uh, you know uh, he had some comic background, but He's another icon, but I'm sure from cut from a very different cloth than Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I'll say. Well, although, you know, yes and no, because now that you make me think about it, um, wow, I can, I can even think of a, an additional concept. Both of those movies were shot on the Paramount lot. So there's there's the kind of interesting comparison and it's interesting yeah. I, yeah, I never i never thought about that until you just mentioned it but yes he was um he was a superstar by about then and before you let go or when you want to let go of an insider's view of the making of that movie we'll, let's talk about it but for now because i have some i have some dirt to share with you so to speak but um but yeah, he was he was he was he was just coming into his superstardom at that time. In fact, um, I wonder if he would have done this movie had he not been committed to it before he became such a big. On the other hand, by the way, I'm not sure that he was the superstar that he is today in death i think his his uh, her heritage or his his image has transcended his career well he he you know i i won't say that steve was a flash in the pan because he had 10 good years where he was at the top of his game after the great escape uh and then of course uh he got caught up in a lot of other things that hurt his career. I, I think he had his own social world. The thing that I, I get the impression over the years, Tony, is that Steve was uncomfortable around people, that he was a professional on the set, but he wasn't exactly the most open person. Is that the impression you got? Well, he and pretty good friends. So, and God knows why. I mean, why does this square kid from San Diego who was a kind of intellectual in college and, 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 and why did Steve 
take a cotton to me. That's another story. I, I mean, I mean, an additional story that I, I I'd like to share with you. But I don't know. He, you know, he he's he was a, ma a magical person as a movie star. He was not like other movie stars. He was unstudied. He was uh, unschooled. He was raw. He had this kind of mythological ba bad boy background. I mean, and he, you know, he did his own stunts. I mean, all, all the things about him that were true were in 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 contradiction to the the, the stars that preceded him. So, I don't know. I don't have an explanation. Was he, um, you know, it's interesting because I've read, I, I had personal experience here because I, uh, about that time, in fact, he may have been working uh, on, um, on Soldier in the Rain. I was riding my little Schwinn Stingray bicycle in Culver City and I stopped at a traffic light on my way to a slot car track to race my little sports car. When I hear a voice, can you tell me where MGM Studios is? And I turned around and it was Steve in a red Ferrari. And I'm looking at him like a double take and like, excuse me. <laughs> and we ended up having a conversation at the um, stoplight for 15 seconds, which seemed like more like 10 minutes, but it was probably more like 15 seconds. And then I read earlier, excuse me, I read much later that he didn't like talking to adults much, uh, but he loved talking to kids. And he well, had a childlike quality about him. Well, maybe that's why I got lucky. And I was kind of a half kid, half adult at the time. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that's, I love that hearing that. I got along very well with him on the set. And then subsequently, years later, renewed that relationship. Um, uh, jumping ahead a bit, not about the movie. Uh, years later, I decided I'd like to direct, uh, and I finally directed a short film that was very successful, and I optioned a script called Nothing in Common, which was a script about a, a woman in the, a, a woman who lived alone in a house in the Malibu colony, and next door to her house, another house was under construction, and under construction, in that construction company was a, 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 a worker who had nothing in common with this rich woman from Beverly, from Beverly Hills and ultimately Malibu. And I thought that would be a great movie for Steve McQueen. Oh. And I was audacious and, and naive enough to think that for my first movie, I could make this film, Nothing in Common, with Steve McQueen and probably Ally McGraw, because at the time that was a popular combination, but whomever. So I don't know how I did this, but I sent it to him. And I sent him the 30 minute tape in those days of the short film that I had directed, The Ransom of Red Chief, which is an O. Henry short story. Right. So I sent Steve, the, I somehow got in touch with him, sent him the, the, my movie, my little movie and sent him this script and he called me back and he said you are a great director i would love to do this movie so here i was you know with my first job as a director and the biggest star in the world wanting to be in it and to cut off to cut the story short 
his company that he was a part of called First Artists, which was him, Barbara Streisand, Paul Newman, Dustin Hoffman, I think, his company wouldn't let him do it. So, really? Yeah. But anyway, in those, in those later years of his life, not life, but career, uh, that was my last professional contact. But then, and I can't, I can't remember how this happened, but in his late sick, I mean, sick, ill, you know, he, he got very ill years. Um, he became kind of hermetic. Right. And he grew a huge beard and long hair, and you couldn't recognize him unless you were like some paparazzi. You would not know it was Steve. And he and I used to hang out in Venice at the sidewalk cafe having a <laughs> day because we had, in, in a way, uh, in some, in many, couple good ways, we did have something in common. Um, I guess whatever our experiences were in the movie business together and the fact that he was an outsider that came overnight almost into the, in the business. But we had tastes in common that we shared, which was I'm a car guy. So we could talk antique and classic cars. We could talk airplanes because I've been a pilot since I was 13. And um, for some reason, and I wish I had recorded it, you know, jotted it down, we used to, he used to call me up and say, hey, Tony, let's go have a beer at the Sidewalk Cafe. Now in those oh, days, wow. Venice, uh, for those of you who don't know Venice, Venice was a, was a deserted, you know, down and out, broke down community in those days. Um, and so you could hang out at the Sidewalk Cafe and be completely anonymous, which is what we did. We just hung out and drank a beer and that was it. And I never knew exactly why we, we, we did not have a deep relationship, but we had a kind of Steve McQueen relationship was, was very rewarding. Oh, I, I envy you that enormously. I, 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 um, there are very few people I remember their deaths uh, so vividly. And I think uh, uh, Steve dying in 80 or 81 was just, uh, just he always had a very, uh, I, I had a very strong interest in his films because they were just so interesting and going all the way back to The Blob, which of course has been dismissed over the years as kind of a, you know, a silly science fiction movie. But if you actually watch The Blob, Steve is very believable in it and it's a, actually a pretty good movie. Um, I'm curious about Jackie Gleason. Uh, I, I know you guys don't have a lot of scenes together, but you probably spent some good time with Jackie. What was your impression of him? Um, well, in contrast to Steve, he was from a world I had no connection with whatsoever, none. I mean, he, he was this legendary at the time, by the way, as you, your listeners probably know, he was the biggest star in television. He was uh, a giant in television. Even I knew who he was. <laughs> and... Um, well, let me let me di let me digress if I may, if it's not digressing for your from your point of view about this movie and Jackie Gleason and Stephen Queen. I'll put them all together for a moment because sure. I don't want to talk too long. So here's this movie we all get cast in: Steve McQueen, Jackie Gleason, and me, and we go and by Ralph Nelson, who Ralph Nelson, who directed, was coming off of that Sydney Poitier movie. Um, 
big hit movie, little movie, little teeny movie with Sidney Poitier and the nuns. What was it called? Oh, right, right. Um, anyway, you know which, one, so, know which one do you mean? But Steve Lily, Lily, but, Lilies but, of the Field. So, so the director, uh, Ralph Nelson, lovely, lovely, kind man, was directing our movie. And so we got together for a table read, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's like when, when everybody in the movie sits down around a table and just sits and reads their lines. There's no performance, there's nothing required. And everybody reads, so Steve McQueen comes to the table read on the Paramount lot. And the one thing I remember, and you have to remember, I was like 20, three, 22 years old, never been in another movie before besides Come Blow Your Horn, never part of the culture. So Steve McQueen comes to this table read and I remember the one thing, I don't know why, he says to Ralph Nelson, you don't do any masters, do you? Now here's what that means. You don't do any scenes in which I have to remember all my lines, do you? Which is kind of it's just kind of an interesting look into his. Well, you know, it's understandable. The guy was never a trained actor, and wait. So that, that it started off with you, you. You don't do any masters, do you? We're not going to do any masters. So then we start shooting, and um, I'm going to guess in the first three or four days, Steve McQueen is late to the set. He drives onto the Paramount lot in his magnificent XKSS Jaguar, by the way. If you've never seen it, go look it up. Uh, you know, a, a, a sports car, Quanon, a scenic Quanon. I mean, it's just a magnificent Jaguar. And he roars, roars past the gate, roars onto the lot, and he's, a, he's late. And so Steve McQueen, uh, so Jackie Gleason goes to the assistant director and he says, you know, this guy McQueen, and I'm paraphrasing, this guy McQueen is like late all the time. So, you know, I'm here all the time. I'm always on time. And by the way, Jackie Gleason was notable as a pro. I'm here waiting for him. I'm not gonna wait for him anymore. So when, when he gets on the set, you come to my, trailer and you tell me and I'll be there right away. So this goes on for a few days. Steve McQueen is late, Jackie Gleason is waiting, and then McQueen notices that Jackie Gleason has been waiting until McQueen gets there. So McQueen goes to the AD and says, hey pal, don't call me until Gleason is on the set. <laughs> so the two of them have this standoff and and I'm not privy to the whole story here so I'm not I'm, I'm I'm kind of interpreting it for you so the two of them you know don't show up until the other one shows up that's how the movie begins and the movie that you value correctly and the performances and the story and everything that people love about the movie which is about these two guys who love each other? It's a it's a love story between two men. What what they call a bromance. They hated, they hated each other. <laughs> they, they 
this is an example of how movies do not necessarily portray the true emotions of the people who are in them. So this is why I, I waited to tell you, because this is a, a truth about the movie. It's just interesting that, you know, men and women both have romances, romantic films that in which they can't stand each other. But this is a movie about two men who love each other and they hated, they just couldn't stand each other. They barely could talk and didn't talk to my knowledge uh, at all, ever, uh, from almost day one when they, you know, had this contretemps, this kind of standoff between themselves. Um, and so I think that's an interesting story about the movie that you probably would never have heard from anybody else. No, I, I would never have heard that. Now, you said you shot on the Paramount lot, but you also shot at a military base. And where was that? Yeah. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. It's up in uh, Monterey. Oh, uh, probably Fort Ord, Fort maybe? Fort Ord, yeah, that's where we were. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, of course, of course. Um, you, you, it's interesting. Your character has a um, has a thing about running, and I remember. Uh, well, the movie has so many images that that fly through me. I mean, obviously, uh, I'm not going to talk about all of them, and we're winding down toward the end of the interview. But I wanted to ask you about Tuesday Weld because Tuesday yeah. is 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 certainly a very very nice part of the movie, in that she's Jackie Gleason's uh, semi girlfriend. Uh, right. Impressions of Tuesday. You know, she was just this lovely young lady, um, almost my age. I think she had been in the movie business, but she wasn't much younger than I or older. Um, she was just very nice. I never got to know her very well. And, you know, one of the things about that movie that's always puzzled me a little bit is, 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 a, is a, na a nasty phrase that people use. But whatever happened to Tuesday Weld? Because her generation of actresses and, and her generation of act, you know, performers uh, often grew into, you know, major presences, especially with the advent of television. That was the kind of almost the beginning of the television era. And um, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't followed it. I don't know. I'm ignorant, but I, I, I wish I knew what happened to Tuesday Well, because I thought she was a wonderful person as well as being a terrific actress. And I don't think she got her due, man. I don't, I don't know why not, but somebody can tell me. Yeah, I think two years later, she reteamed with uh, McQueen uh, on the Cincinnati Kid. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, no, she was always a very interesting and lovely character, the lovely person to, to see on screen. Um, it's interesting, uh, being at Showtime for 10 years, I used to, you know, uh, I, as the, one of the key publicists there, I used to organize a lot of the screenings with the team. And uh, one of the guys who always seemed to show up, and I know I saw you there, I, I remember seeing Lou Gallo uh, show yeah. up a few times. And I hadn't realized that Lou Gallo, uh, being a student of World War II movies, I didn't realize that Lou Gallo was a protege of, of the great director, Lewis Milestone. Yes. Uh, and who put him in several films. And in fact, the same year you were doing Soldier in the Rain, Lou was in PT-109 with Cliff Robertson, even though um, uh, Lewis Milestone had been fired from that film. So the director on 
PT109 was actually Leslie Martinson, but uh, got to know Lou. And of course, I thought Lou, Lou had an interesting character with him and Ed Nelson being the rather uh, villainous uh, MPs on, on, the, um, on the movie with Ed Nelson. Um, and Lou Gallo, those two guys became good friends. Lou Gallo actually is the godfather of my first child. Oh, wow, how interesting. Yeah, I recently talked to his son. I did. I published a book uh, two years ago. The, I did the Encyclopedia of the Twilight Zone, and Lou um, is in a couple of episodes, key episodes. And I actually asked his son if he'd get me a nice photo of Lou, uh, so I had some connectivity with the family. Well, you know, um, Tony, I could talk to you all night. I, I didn't even. I, I plan to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Castle Keep and a little bit about. Um, uh, none but the brave, but we can talk. I would like to reserve the opportunity to maybe talk to you again at some point. Any any old time. It's fun to relive those days in, in, in trying to remember the details. And um... well, for the listeners who don't know it, I'm sure that they, they do. But, you know, uh, Tony went from acting to producing and produced arguably one of the most successful films in film history, The Sting. And that probably could uh, be another long conversation. Uh, I'm actually working right now with David Ward. I'm trying to launch a limited series on the life of Audie Murphy. Well, I'm working with David Ward too. So how about that? Well, look at that. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, well, um, I, I hope to see your name back on the marquee. Is it a feature or a television? It's a limited series about the California gold rush. Oh, well, look at that. I think I think he did mention it. I don't think he um, I didn't ask him about you, but that's great. I mean, we're in good company. David, David's great. And I've got my uh, challenge because nobody today knows who Audie Murphy is. Well, Audie Murphy is a, a legend that deserves your attention as you're giving it to him. I think it's a great choice. I and 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 not only do I think it's great. But I'm looking forward to your education. You're educating me because um, there's so much I, I don't know, and I'm sure is buried there that is fascinating. Yes, there's a great untold story in the 1955 film that starred Audie. You know, in his story to Helen Back was just a little, you know, very much the beginning, or the, I should say, the the. Um, the tip of the iceberg on his interesting life. Uh, well, Tony, this has been great. Uh, the listeners got a real insight into you, how you got into the business and certainly the behind the scenes story on Soldier in the Rain. I have to tell you, by the way, that one of the reasons I, I, I love the movie um, and it's because I'm such a, a nut about film music. I thought that the, um, the, the theme of, of, uh, of the movie, that, that little, uh, that kind of little march uh, is just one of my favorite themes. Um, it, 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 it is kind of interesting that the movie was not really a success because it's it's kind of in uh, different genres. It has comedy, it has drama, uh, but it's it's a it's a nice film, and I'm so glad you had a chance to be in it. And it came out a few days after the JFK assassination, which is not a not a happy time to come out with a movie. Oh my God, talk about bad timing. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. So in other words, it was kind of dumped. Well, I, I really don't know, but I, I do know, and I actually only learned this recently, 
that it, it's, it, it was released um, days, literally days after the JFK assassination. So who wanted to go to a movie? Well, according to IMDb Pro, which is certainly not the be-all, end-all of, of information, it, it, the entire gross of the movie was 2.1 million, which probably didn't cover most of the budget. Uh, although I don't know what people got in those days, uh, but um, it's still it's a it's it's still an interesting picture in uh, and and certainly at a time when black and white movies were beginning to be numbered, it was one of the last you know major studio black and white movies. Well, I tell you, your enthusiasm and your taste is in very good company because over the years, I have heard over and over and over again from people who I respect and don't know and respect and do know from people who know what they're talking about, that it's a really, really interesting, if not classic, but you know, it's a, it's a special movie in a certain pantheon and, um, and as a participant, I've, I've never really realized that. <laughs> well, we've been chatting so amiably with Tony Bill, one of the actors in, in, Soldier, uh, in Soldier in the Rain, uh, and certainly so many other titles, which we will return to uh, hopefully in the near future. But you've been listening to the Lock 22 Network. This is Steve Rubin for Saturday Night at the Movies, where it's always Saturday night. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you and on the next show.